I wonder, have you ever found yourself in the situation of believing that you were prepared and finding out only too late that you were not? Imagine with me this morning a man and a woman prepared for a wedding day. They've sent out invitations. They've picked a venue. They've selected suits and dresses. They've booked flowers and caterers. But hadn't given thought to the day after that wedding day, the first day of a lifetime of marriage. Imagine this couple. Let's make them recent college graduates. What if I told you that this young woman about to get married didn't know her fiancé's siblings at all, or what, her, what his parents were like, or what he was going to do for work after college to provide? What if I told you that this young man doesn't know his fiancé's heart's desires? How many kids she would like? Where she might want to live after the wedding day? On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being very prepared and 1 being not prepared at all, how prepared would you say this couple is for their wedding day? Not very. Now, they're ready for the wedding day. They've prepared everything. They're ready for the event. But they're not prepared for a lifetime of marriage. Perhaps they want to be married so badly that they've blinded themselves to what marriage itself, the point of the wedding day, would be like. What loving this specific person might look like. They've convinced themselves that when marriage came, this person, this relationship, would be everything that they imagined it would be, and more. They think they are ready for the dream of marriage but they are not prepared for the reality. In our passage today, we encounter the nation of Israel anticipating their Messiah, their long-awaited Savior. And while they think they're ready for His arrival, they aren't. God's people have been awaiting their Messiah and they think they're ready for His arrival. But as will become clear, while they are ready for a Messiah, they are not in any way prepared for this Messiah. They have ideas of what they want the Messiah to be, but they aren't prepared for the real Messiah when He comes. They were ready for a warrior king who would judge the other nations. They weren't ready for a Messiah who would humbly save sinners and judge the proud, even the prideful of Israel. They needed to be prepared. We've begun a series in the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel is the third book in the New Testament. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, there should be Bibles there in the pew rack in front of you. You can take one of those, open it up. Go to the first few pages, open up the, the table of contents. You'll see that the Bible is divided into two parts. The Old Testament. This is a, a history of mankind, of God's creation of all things, of our sin as humans against Him, and of God's selection of a people to be His own treasured possession. That's the Old Testament. We're now in the New Testament, the second part there in your table of contents, which is a record of God's promises that were made in the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. 
and His life and death and resurrection. And then God gathering a people for Himself from every nation to be His own. That's the New Testament. We're there in the third book, Luke's Gospel. Turn with me to the book of Luke and we'll be beginning in Luke chapter 3. And we're going to go from 3.1 all the way to 4.13 this morning. For context, Luke chapter 1, we saw that there were two prophecies. Prophecy of a, a prophet, John, and the prophecy of a Messiah, Jesus. We saw that there were two miraculous births. The birth of John, John the Baptist being born to an elderly woman, Elizabeth, in her old age. And another miraculous birth, Jesus being born of a virgin, a young woman, miraculously, because he was God become man. We saw two responses to that incredible message. Zechariah, who was incredulous, disbelieving, and Mary, who humbly believed the message. Which reminds us that we must check our own hearts and how we respond to this message. In Luke chapter 2, a couple weeks ago, sorry, last week, we saw the incarnation of Jesus as Jesus was born to Mary in humble circumstances. He is a king, but yet He was laid in a cattle feeding trough. He wasn't even born in a home or in an inn, but neglected. We saw the announcement of angels. We saw the recognition of Him by elderly people in the temple. And we saw Jesus' initial obedience both to His heavenly Father and to His earthly parents. Now, in Luke chapter 3, Jesus has grown to adulthood and is about to embark on His earthly ministry. But further preparations need to be made. The people need to be prepared for the Messiah, but incredibly, even the Messiah Himself needs to be prepared for His earthly ministry. We'll be looking this morning at Luke 3.1 to 4.13 with this main point, if you're taking notes. This main point. Humanity is prideful. Humanity is prideful. But the Savior is humble. But the Savior is humble. Humanity is prideful. But the Savior is humble. And we'll be looking at our passage this morning with three points. Sorry, four points. Four points. Point number one, preparation. Point number two, anointing. Point number three, genealogy. And point number four, temptation. Point number one, preparation. Point number two, anointing. Point number three, genealogy. And point number four, temptation. It's my prayer that as we look at this passage this morning, that our own hearts would be prepared for this King, but humbled as we see the Savior's humility taking on our humanity and becoming our Savior. We'll begin in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. Let me read the first couple of verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Look at how Luke begins the, the ministry of Jesus and of John the Baptist. 
Notice that the setting that he lays out here, the historical setting. Note that it is historical. Luke is not being mythological. There are many people who talk about Jesus' ministry as if it is simply myth. Ideas that may have been rooted in some original person, but then were made up by people who wanted to have a history that was exciting and fantastical, who invented their own history. No, Luke is writing history here. He he gives a particular date. He lists the political figures in place. And the remarkable thing is every single figure that he lists, we know existed not only from God's Word, and we know it from that, also from the historical record. No one doubts the existence, and even secular atheist historians, that each of these people existed. Luke is rooting the account of Jesus and of John the Baptist to an exact place and time when it actually happened and could be verified by many, many eyewitnesses. Not only is he laying this out because it is history and it did happen, but he's also giving some foreshadowing because he's listing some of the people that would arrest and kill John the Baptist and that would arrest and kill Jesus. Look then at the end of verse 2. The most important thing isn't who these great political figures are. The most important thing is that the Word of God has come. And the Word of God has come here to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John is a prophet. And the language here is borrowed from the Old Testament because John is an Old Testament prophet preparing the people for their Messiah. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, as he was in the wilderness. John is going to be fulfilling the prophecies made about him back in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. In Luke chapter 1, verses 76 to 80. He is going to be fulfilling the prophecies made about him in the prophets. Look there at verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Look at John's ministry. It had been foretold in Malachi, in Psalms, and in Isaiah. Look at how Luke records it in verse 4. What was his ministry going to be? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Each valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You see that the language here is language of cities preparing for the arrival of their king. And the way, one of the ways these cities would prepare for the arrival of their king was to make a smooth approach road for the king and all of his entourage as they come. He's using geographical, topographical language to talk about the preparation of the people for their king who is arriving. But how does John fulfill this? Is he using a construction crew to build roads and highways? Is he doing great construction works there in the land of Israel? No, what is this preparation for the king going to be? Well, it's going to be preaching. Look at verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming. Proclaiming. You see, John is preparing the people, the Israelite people, for their promised Messiah by preaching by proclaiming and what is he preaching 
a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the message being preached by John was a gospel message. Look down at verse 18 in Luke chapter 3. Look at how Luke summarizes the the ministry of John in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news. He preached good news to the people. This is gospel preaching that John the Baptist is preaching. He's preaching good news. The remarkable thing, though, about this good news is it doesn't sound like good news. Look at verse 7. Look at the first words out of the mouth of John the Baptist that Luke records here. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Whoa, what does he say? You brood of vipers. You group of poisonous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's good news, Luke? That's good news? Yes, it is. John the Baptist is giving a warning of judgment. And in this warning of judgment, there is an offer of mercy for any that would respond to this message of judgment with repentance for the forgiveness of sins, with faith in God's promised salvation. Do you know that the Gospel message begins with bad news so that we can get to the good news? You see, John here is proclaiming good news by pointing forward to the coming Messiah. Do you know that we do the same thing as Christians? We do the same thing as evangelists, those that preach good news, whether from a pulpit or on the street to neighbors, family, and friends. We preach good news, good news of salvation, but that it begins with bad news. It begins with the news that all of us are poisonous snakes deep down. All of us are a brood of vipers. We have rebelled against a holy God, and we deserve His judgment and justice. And yet the remarkable thing is that while we have rebelled against our holy Creator God, He offers to us hope. He offers to us mercy and forgiveness of sins if we would repent of our sins and trust in Him and in His promised Messiah, Savior Jesus, who came to forgive our sins. A a quick point of application here. I know many of us who have a love for our neighbors, for our family and friends, There can be a temptation in us because of our love for others, because of our mercy and compassion on others to want to play down, to want to dumb down the the gospel message and to particularly dumb down this focus of John the Baptist that we are deep down poisonous snakes, that we aren't just good people who've gotten into some trouble or good people that have had a bad upbringing or difficult circumstances, though that might be true. The news is much worse than that. All of us deep down are rebels against the holy God. All of us deep down are evil. We have rejected our good and loving God and King, and we have put ourselves at the King of our lives. We've rejected His good and loving rule over us. 
We deserve his judgment. Let me encourage you in your evangelism to not play down the importance of the doctrine of sin, of how deep it goes, of original sin in all of us through the sin of Adam. But to hold out for people this bad news first. Because once the bad news is understood, the good news can be embraced. If the, if the bad news is played down, the good news isn't accepted as good. It can be dismissed as unimportant. Imagine going to a doctor and the doctor playing down how bad the situation is in terms of your health. If the doctor doesn't seem too concerned about your health, how eager are you going to be to respond with the offered prescription or the offered process of getting that health addressed? But if the doctor is serious and lets you know how bad it is, you're going to respond eagerly. The same thing is true with sin and with the offer of salvation. Do you see that John in verse 3 is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin? John baptizes Israelites. Now this baptism is a foreshadowing of Christian baptism, but it is not Christian baptism. It is a foreshadowing of Christian baptism. We know this because in Acts chapter 18, when the Apostle Paul comes across disciples of John who'd never heard of Jesus yet, and they hear the gospel message, and they believe it, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, the Apostle Paul makes sure that they are baptized with a Christian baptism. He doesn't say, oh, you've already been baptized. No, that was a baptism in preparation for the Messiah. There is Christian baptism, which is the, the baptism spoken of of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, as he sent out his disciples to preach the gospel, not in anticipation of the Messiah, but in an understanding of who the Messiah is and all that he did in his life and death and resurrection. And that Christian baptism is a baptism in the name, the one name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This baptism is in anticipation of that. The baptism is literally people going into the water and being put in the water as a symbol of being washed, of being prepared, of being made clean from their sins. This was, a, it looks like, part of the process for those who were not Jews to become Jews. It was part of the process that they had for those that became proselytes to Judaism. One of the things they would do is be baptized, to be washed as a symbol of going from being unclean Gentiles to being clean Jews. And the remarkable thing about John's baptism is he's telling the Jews that they need to be baptized. He's telling the Jews that they are unclean and that they need to be prepared. Baptism then here is a symbol of a change of heart in his hearers, a change of heart in sinners as they turn from their sin, as they put their hope in the coming Messiah. John then baptizes them as a symbol of the inward change, very similar to Christian baptism. Now, these people hear this message of repentance in verses 7 to 9, and look at their response, verses 10 to 14. The crowds ask him, what then shall we do? He's told them that they should not be putting pride in the fact that they are Jews or thinking that they are entitled or deserve a Messiah. He's saying none of you deserve a Messiah. All of you must repent and be humbled 
They were prideful. What should they do? Verse 10. Well, he tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, to live lives that evidence that they are truly changed. Changed from the inside out. You see, John was concerned that people would come and have this experience of hearing an interesting message. Even of going through with it and being baptized. But having nothing more than just an experience without true change. You see, what John is saying is, rather than a simple experience, no, what you need is the kind of repentance and faith that, that leads to a new life. Look at verse 10. The crowds ask him, what then shall we do? Verse 11, he answered them, show love to your neighbors. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food that is extra to do likewise. Then a couple of particular groups come. The tax collectors come. They also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, be content with what you have. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And don't embezzle money from the people. Then the soldiers come. Verse 14, what does he tell them to do? He says, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your your wages. He's encouraging these people in whatever station in life that they are in to be faithful, to trust God, to not use their position or authority to abuse others, but to imitate their loving Heavenly Father, God, who is kind and merciful on those who are weak. Here is the response that all of us must have to the Gospel message, whether it's Jews here in anticipation of their Messiah or those of us that have heard the Gospel after the Messiah has come, looking back at what He's accomplished. You see that the Gospel message is good news, but it must lead to the right response, which is repentance, turning away from our sin, turning away from ourselves, turning away from this world and turning toward God and putting our faith in His in His promised salvation in Christ. But that response of repentance and faith leads to the kind of new life, the regeneration, the justification that happens in a moment, but then leads to a change that is affected and involves every aspect of our lives from that point forward. You see, God changes us from the inside out, from being poisonous snakes to being His own children, from being those that are evil corrupt, worthy of condemnation, to being truly changed and washed and forgiven of our sins so that we can now live lives to Him with His power and with His help. But it is a true change that involves every area of our lives. I wonder this morning if you've had an experience like these Israelites in going and visiting John. I wonder if you've had an experience of hearing an interesting message Maybe you've raised a hand or walked an aisle. But that experience never really affected the rest of your life. You went on as if nothing happened. You left that place, maybe even being assured that you were a Christian now because you had this experience. You maybe even prayed a prayer. But you never changed. You never turned from your sin. You never began living this new life, this Jesus life that He calls us to, a life of love, kindness to others. Do you know that you may be self-deceived into thinking that you are one of God's children when you're not? If you've never experienced the new birth and all of the change that comes with it, not perfection, but growing in holiness, 
growing and looking more and more like our Savior whom we love, who saved us. It may be that you're not a true Christian. That you are like some of these Israelites who were entitled, who believed that they deserved God's mercy and love, but had never been humbled. Let me encourage you, even this morning, to repent with a true repentance. Turning away from your sin, not just today, but forever. And trusting in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. He offers it to you. And He offers you this new life. Look then at verse 15 to 17. There's a lot of messianic expectation. Many are wondering whether John might be the Christ, it says in verse 15. So John sets the record straight. Verse 16. What does he say? John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does John say? Well, he testifies about the Christ. He says, I am not the Christ, but the Messiah is coming. The Anointed One is coming. And He's far greater than I am. In fact, He is so great. He's so mighty. He's so holy and so worthy. I am not worthy to do the most menial, most menial servant or slave task of unstrapping his sandals. This one who is coming is so holy and so worthy of our service and of our praise. What John says is, I, I should do nothing but bow down and worship him. Now he points forward to the one who is coming and a baptism that is coming. A baptism not simply of water, but a baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, Jesus is going to come and He's going to pour out two things. He's going to pour out the Holy Spirit and He's going to pour out fire. Now what is He talking about here? Well, pouring out the Holy Spirit or baptizing you with the Holy Spirit is a reference to all of the new covenant promises in the Old Testament prophets. If you have time this afternoon, I would encourage you to read Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and Ezekiel 37. And look at these prophecies that are made about the Messiah who was to come. And the new covenant that He was going to bring to pass. Not like the old covenant, which the Israelites broke, but a new covenant. Not a covenant where God gave them demands that they couldn't keep, but the kind of covenant that would involve God putting His own Spirit on His people changing them from the inside out and then empowering them once they are changed and renewed and forgiven to live the life that He's called them to. Jesus is going to be pouring out the Holy Spirit when He comes. God's presence in the third person of the Trinity. But not only that, He will also baptize with fire. And what is this fire a reference to? Well, it's a reference to His future judgment. Look at verse 17. His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into His barn. But the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. So who is this Messiah who is to come? Well, He is the judge who will save and He is also the judge who will condemn. And He has come to divide humanity. And to those that are His people that He pours out His Spirit upon, and those that are not, that He will judge and condemn forever. And He is the One who will divide the two. He is the One who will either save 
or kill. John points forward to Jesus being this judge, the one who will judge all of humanity. That there will at the end of the day be only two kinds of people. And he uses an image of of a harvester at the harvest who is dividing up the wheat or the barley that is brought in and dividing up the grain from the rest of of the, the crop. The rest of the crop dries up and blows away. is burned with unquenchable fire. And the wheat then is collected and saved. God is... Uh, Jesus is the judge, the, the one who is harvesting all of humanity. And He's dividing humanity into two kinds of people. This is the one who is to come. Jesus. Now in verse 18... You see what we saw earlier with many other exhortations. He preached good news to the people. But then Luke gives us a glimpse of the end of John's ministry. Look at how it ends, verse 19 and 20. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who was mentioned up above in verse 1 and, verse one and 2, Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to all of his evil deeds by locking up John in prison. Here's a glimpse of what happens to God's faithful servants in an evil world, in an evil generation. John is in prison. Eventually, we'll find out later in the book of Luke, he is beheaded. John was not afraid to preach the truth to anyone. In fact, he wasn't afraid to preach the truth and to rebuke the king. Because his authority was greater than the authority of the kings because he preached God's word and God's truth. Herod had disobeyed the law by encouraging his brother's wife to divorce him and then marrying her in an unlawful marriage. John calls him out and he bears the wrath of the king. This is a a foreshadowing for us of what happens to Jesus in the future as he speaks truth in such a way that he's eventually killed by the authority. This is also what happens not only to Jesus, but to Jesus' faithful followers. Do you know that all of us who follow Jesus faithfully and who are willing to speak the truth in love to anyone and everyone around us, that we will be, like John in some way, rejected by some. We will be hated by some. We will be scorned and mocked. That we will be persecuted by some. I wonder if this morning, if you are often too quiet with your personal faith in Christ, if you're afraid to speak the truth about who you are, about what you believe, about what is true, let me encourage you to follow John's example and be faithful. That doesn't mean that you constantly shove truth down everyone's throat every moment of every day. But it does mean that you are willing to give testimony, to testify of the truth that is revealed in God's Word. Truth about every part of life. Let me encourage you, if you are afraid, to take confidence, not in yourself and your own beliefs or even your own understanding of it, but confidence in God to help you to speak truth and love, knowing that while you may be rejected by some, God may use you to be a witness like John was a witness 
to others for their good, for their eternal good. It's point number one, preparation. Point number two, anointing. Point number two, anointing. Look at Luke chapter 3 and verses 21 to 22. The end of our passage on John the Baptist is this short two-verse passage, Luke 3, 21 and 22, on Jesus' baptism. Let me read it, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Luke jumps to the end of John's life, at the end of our previous passage, to talk about his arrest and then his eventual death. Now he comes back to the time when John baptized Jesus. Jesus himself was baptized, which is remarkable. What's remarkable about it is that he did it. Here is a symbol of repentance for sin, and Jesus goes through with it himself too. How could the sinless one be baptized? Why would he need to be baptized? The Gospel writer Mark records for us that John protests and says, no, I should be baptized by you. And yet Jesus insists, no, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus is associating himself with Israel, with humanity, not because he needs to repent and to be washed and forgiven, but to represent us. He associates with us and associates with the nation of Israel and God's people who are preparing for the Messiah. But what's remarkable is in that moment when he's baptized, in order to make it clear that he was not baptized for his own sin, the Trinity interrupts the proceeding. The Holy Spirit descends from heaven. God the Father speaks. And here we have in clear form a vision of the Holy Trinity, God Himself, and all three persons, the Father speaking from heaven, the Son who has become a man incarnate, being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending on Him and anointing Him. Look at this beautiful picture, this beautiful reality, the Trinity for for all to see. You see, our, our God is a one God who is also a Trinity. This is a truth at the very heart of the Bible's message that is often misunderstood, even by Christians or those that would call themselves Christian. But here Luke is making it clear that God, while He is one, God is also a trinity. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, making up one God. It is a mystery, and it is difficult to understand. But that doesn't mean that we withdraw and Refuse to try to understand what the Bible is revealing about who this God is. The message of the Trinity, while maybe confusing at first, is good news. The message of God being one God revealed in three persons is good news for you and for me. Because it means, in an incredibly tangible way, that our God is a God of love. The truth of the Trinity is anticipated in the Old Testament. It's hinted at 
in the Old Testament, but it's revealed clearly in the New Testament. Things that were hard to understand in the Old Testament become clear in the New, and particularly in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The reality of the Trinity is that while God is one, and He is a one God, He exists in three persons. And what this means is, from eternity past, from before creation, God was not lonely. God existed in Trinity in perfect fellowship. The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, enjoying one another. Enjoying each other, showing love to one another. Sharing love within the Godhead. The idea that God is love sounds good, it sounds nice, but it doesn't make any sense if God is one and not a trinity if you think about life in God before creation. There are many people that talk about the creation that even talk about God's redemption of sinners as if He was a lonely God who was bored or had some idea of love that He wanted to share with someone or something and so then He creates to not be alone. But that isn't the case. The God of the Bible is a God who is self-sufficient and a God who is independent, who doesn't need creation, but creates as an extension of His shared love, bringing more and more into the love that is enjoyed in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we see it clearly pictured in Jesus' baptism. It is shown through the Holy Spirit descending on Him, landing on Him. This is Jesus anointing. Prophets, priests, and kings were often anointed in the Old Testament, anointed with oil, set apart for the work that God had for them. Jesus is anointed here, not with oil, and not by someone else, because He is the greatest. He cannot be anointed by someone else. No, He is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, filling him and setting him apart for his work and then leading him to do all that the Father has for him to do. And then we have the wonderful declaration from heaven in verse 22. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. As we think about this anointing, realize that Jesus is being empowered for his ministry to save And one of the the most wonderful things that Jesus is going to do in saving sinners is He is going to unite people to Himself and bring us into the relationship that there is in the Trinity and make us, through Him, through being united with Him, children of God. So that one day, for those of us who repent and believe in Christ, God can say the same thing to us. You are my beloved son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Not because of anything that we have done to deserve his pleasure, but because we've been united with Christ. Because Christ himself is ours and we are his. And in being connected with him, the heavenly father becomes our father who delights in us and cares for us. This is point number two, the anointing. Point number three, genealogy. Point number three, genealogy. Look at verses 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. Luke 3, 23 to 38. Now, in between the declaration of Jesus 
being called the beloved Son, being called the Son of God in verse 21 and 22, all of a sudden, between that and the temptation at the beginning of chapter 4, we have Luke placing in here, cramming in here, a genealogy. Why does he do this? Why is Luke cramming in a genealogy here? We know that Matthew puts his genealogy at the very beginning of the book. Similar to many Old Testament books, he puts the genealogy at the beginning so that we know from the beginning who this person is that's being talked about. I wonder if genealogies are the parts of Scripture that you just skip over because you don't understand them. Let me encourage you not to skip over genealogies. Genealogies are important. They are a record of the people of God because of the promises of God. Genealogies are a record of the promises of God to the people of God. These genealogies give us a record of who it is are the people that promises have been made to and that promises through their line will be fulfilled. Look at how Jesus is talked about here. Matthew finishes his genealogy in David. Luke doesn't end there, though he goes through David. He begins in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Pause there for one minute. Jesus is not the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary through a miracle that happened as the Holy Spirit incarnated Christ in Mary's womb. But Joseph was his adopted father, and it was assumed that Joseph was his father. But through the adoption of Joseph taking Jesus to be his son here on earth, Jesus became the heir of all of the promises made to King David through Joseph, who was the heir of David. Through adoption in this family, Jesus got all of the rights and privileges offered to King David. And he was the one that all of these promises were pointing to. Luke lists the actual people in Jesus' genealogy. There's a lot of them. I'm not going to read all of them. But look at verse 31. He is the son of David, the end of 31, the son of Jesse. Look also at verse 34. He's also the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. What does this mean? Well, it means that Jesus is the heir to all of the promises made to King David. Because God promised to King David that he would have a son in his line who would rule on his throne forever. And Jesus is the one who fulfills all those promises. He is the heir. He is also the heir, the one through whom all of the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 are fulfilled. You see, God made promises to Abraham that through you, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. How does that happen? Well, through Jesus, Abraham's descendant. But rather than stopping with David or with Abraham and all of the covenant promises that were made to them, Luke keeps going. He keeps going back, referring to grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers until he gets all the way back, verse 38, to Adam. All the way back to Adam. You see, Jesus is not only a Jew, though he is a Jew. He's not only a descendant of Abraham, though he is a descendant of Abraham. He is also a descendant of Adam. That is, 
Jesus is human and is one not only with the Israelite nation, but with all of humanity. And what Luke is highlighting here is that Jesus is not only the promised Davidic king, the promised descendant of Abraham, the seed through whom God would bless all people. Jesus, by becoming a man and uniting himself with this particular family, is also a representative, not just for the Jews, but also for all of humanity. Do you notice how it ends? The Son of God. You see, Jesus is both man and God. He is both fully, truly God and truly man. But I believe very clearly that Luke puts the genealogy here so that we understand both the divinity of Christ as the Father declares, this is my beloved Son, and the humanity of Christ in anticipation of the temptation of Christ. You see, the next thing that happens is Jesus goes through a temptation that turns back the failure of the temptation of Adam and Eve. Jesus, as the descendant of Adam and Eve, as the descendant of humanity, is going to be the second Adam, the true Adam, the Adam who would not fail. I hope that you have hope as you read a genealogy like this. Hope that God keeps His promises. It may take a while, but God always keeps His promises. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to cling to the promises of God, knowing that it may take a while for Him to fulfill them, but He will never be late. That He may do it in ways that you don't expect, but it will always be good. And when you look back thousands of years from now, perhaps, from that last day when you stand before Christ and look back at all that God has done to save people like you, you will not be disappointed, but only encouraged as your God demonstrates His goodness in fulfilling all of His promises. Let me encourage you also to be reminded of Christ's humility in the Incarnation. This genealogy here shows us the Incarnation of Christ. That He humbly took on humanity. He left heaven. He left His home. He left His throne and descended to being born as a baby, born as a man. He was associating with us in all of our weakness. Associating with us everything that pertains to us and our humanity. Jesus took on. But He did it that He may save us from our sin. That's point number three, genealogy. Point number four, temptation. More quickly, point number four, temptation. You see Jesus being fully God and fully man now is led by the Holy Spirit who anointed Him, verse 1 of chapter 4, into the wilderness. Look at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Verse 2. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, if you have any knowledge of the Old Testament, you should realize that Luke is making connections for us. What kinds of connections is Luke making? Well, one, that Jesus is not doing this of His own power. The one who's been anointed by the Holy Spirit is being led by the Spirit. That is, He doesn't blunder into a temptation, but He is being led deliberately by the Holy Spirit to do all that God has planned for Him. This was God's plan. 
What else is he highlighting? It was God's plan to bring him into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? If you know your Old Testament, when you think of wilderness, what kind of connections do you make? God's people spending a lot of time wandering around a wilderness in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. How long were they there? Oh, interesting, verse 2. They were there for 40 years. How long is Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. See, Jesus is uniting himself to the sufferings of Israel by going into the wilderness. And not only that, he's going not only as an Israelite, the descendant of Abraham and David, but also as a man being tempted by the devil. Now the connection is back to Adam, to the temptation in the garden, where the devil comes and tempts that first man and first woman. Jesus is coming as a representative of humanity. And look at what he experiences. He ate nothing during those days. Now think of those two connections again. The connection of God's people in the wilderness, wandering, being hungry, complaining, testing God. And think also of Adam and Eve who take and eat. You can almost anticipate what the temptation is going to be based on the situation. And when they were ended, it says at the end of verse 2, He was hungry. How would this Jesus respond to such a situation? We know how the Israelites responded when they went through a difficult situation like the Holy Spirit has just led Jesus into. How did they respond? Were they humble? Did they trust God? No, they were prideful and angry, and they accused God of doing wrong by putting them in such a difficult situation. I wonder how you are responding to the situation you're in today. I wonder if you're tempted to question God's goodness based on your circumstances. Let me encourage you to look at Christ. Look at what He went through. This was not Jesus outside of God's plan, but being led by the Holy Spirit into difficult things for His good. God does the same thing with all of His children. He brings difficult situations into our lives. Not because He doesn't love us, but because He does. And He wants us to learn to rely on Him and to trust Him. Satan comes and brings three temptations. The first temptation in verse 3 is the temptation beginning with a question of doubt. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now look at the temptation. It's similar to the temptation in the garden. Did God really say... But what should we be reminded of just happened just before the genealogy. What did the Father say? What what was the word of God to Christ? You are my beloved Son. God had spoken. He'd given His word. Was there any reason to doubt it now? But the temptation looks as if what Satan is saying is, look at your circumstances. Could you really be the Son of God if you're in such dire circumstances? If you're so hungry? If you're here out in the desert all alone, surely it wouldn't be outside of God's plan for you to just turn some stone into bread. But there is evil at the the heart of this temptation. Satan is tempting him to distrust his heavenly Father, to take things into his own hands. How does Jesus respond? Verse 4, Jesus answered him, it is written. He gives him God's word. He fights the fire 
of the temptation with the sword of God's word. And he takes his text from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. One of the passages that talk about the wilderness wanderings and the response of God's people as they sinned. And he quotes, man shall not live by bread alone. How is man to live? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus resists the temptation. Verse 5, the devil takes him up to show him the kingdoms of the world and offers him, I'll give you this authority that's been delivered to me if you worship me. It looks like this is a pragmatic, practical temptation. Don't go through all of this difficulty. Just let me give you authority. I'll give you Caesar's throne. And then you can bring your kingdom with all of the practical resources of humanity. And what does Jesus do? He resists again. Also from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. The third temptation, verses 9 to 12, He puts Him on the pinnacle of the temple. And similar to the first temptation, says, if you are the Son of God, questioning again God's Word, throw yourself down from here. That is, find out for sure. Prove it. Because if you really are, God's made promises about this. And how does Jesus respond to this temptation? Also from Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, there's many things we can learn as Christians from Jesus' temptation. We can learn that temptations come when we are in our weakest state. We can learn that Satan is crafty and he brings the temptation in such a way to make it look even good or right. He twists the truth. Satan causes us to question God, to take things into our own hands rather than trusting him. We can also learn from Jesus' example. Because Jesus did fight the fire of the temptation with the sword of God's Word. By meditating on God's Word, Jesus had responses to the temptation of the devil. But while all of these things are good and right for us to learn, what Jesus was doing here in being tempted was not simply being an example for us to learn from. He was doing much more. He was withstanding the temptation that Adam and Eve did. He was in our place perfectly going through the temptation and becoming for us that true and second and better Adam who becomes our perfect representative. The one who is true and right and good, Jesus. The the only man who was perfect and yet who was tempted in all ways like as we are and yet without sin was being prepared to be our perfect high priest. Look at verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You see, the temptations didn't stop after these first three. They continued on until the end of his life. And very similar language was picked up by people when he was on the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down. Jesus continued to go through temptation, and yet he withstood them all by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God. Turn with me as we close to Hebrews chapter 2. And look at what the New Testament writers say about Jesus and His temptation, His suffering. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, it says that it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist 
in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus went through this humiliation and suffering. Why? Verse 14 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, Therefore He, that is Jesus, had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, Jesus, in going through this temptation and withstanding it, prepared, was prepared to be our perfect sacrifice. And now, as He stands before God at His right hand, He is prepared to intercede for us, to help us, to comfort us, to give us the help we need. Those of us that have repented of our sins, trusted in Him, and been made like Him through His death for us to withstand any and every temptation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we are, deep down, all of us, naturally prideful. And yet we are in awe of our humble Savior. And while we are aware of our sin, oh God, we have hope that in Christ there is more mercy than there is sin in us. We give you praise for Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.